All right, all right, all right. We are in Acts, the 21st chapter today, as we are uh, bringing to an end, I guess officially in this chapter, we'll bring an end to the third missionary journey of uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, Jason, are you ready to once again jump on a boat and then do some walking and then do some uh, marching to Jerusalem in this chapter? First century travel at its best. All right. So we come to chapter 21. Uh, Paul had just finished uh, this uh, long, very emotional meeting with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. And so Luke just picks right up from there in chapter 21, verse 1. And we do notice kind of, the again, the, the, the pronouns make it very clear that Luke is with them. And I think that's going to be very evident with just how detailed uh, some of these first few verses are as he describes uh, the journey um, you know, to Jerusalem by way of Antioch. So verse 1, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Coes, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So there's all this kind of like, you know, additional like nautical information and, and terminology that's used there, like, you know, a straight course and, uh, or there in verse 3, leaving it on the left. If you were looking at a map, what you would recognize is that on oh, the direction they're heading, what that means is it means they're heading south. Uh, but this all, again, Luke is there, so he's able to tell all of this in very uh, detailed, very detailed in the geography as well uh, of, of these events. But they come here at the end of verse 3 to, to Tyre, and there's some things said here about the time with the church, uh, the brethren there at Tyre in verses 4, 5, and 6. Verse 4 says, and having sought out the disciples, let's just stop right there for a second. Um, that phrase is a little unique. How's the New American Standard render that? Uh, after looking up the disciples. Okay, that may indicate that this may have been their first time being with these Christians. Uh, mm -hmm. They maybe had not been familiar with this uh, group of Christians prior to this time, and so they, they had to look them up. Uh, I don't know you know, that they had a Church of Christ directory floating <laughs> around, or uh, they certainly didn't have the internet. Um, but they had to go and find these disciples, and, and they are. that may also explain why they end up spending... Uh, several days here with them. Uh, let's remember, Paul's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. Uh, there's been, you know, he made time for the Ephesian elders and waited three days for them because that was really important. Um, but he's kind of darting to get to Jerusalem, but they're going to stop here for a little bit. Uh, that may indicate as well that uh, these brethren, it was just important for them to spend kind of some extended time with, with these Christians. Um, having sought out those disciples, we stayed for seven days. And then notice this at the end of verse 4. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, of course, Paul has made it very clear in the last couple of chapters that he's determined to go to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. I'm going to suggest to you that it's not just that he's, you know, he's just decided this on his own and that's what he's wanting to do. It does seem as if it's very clear that this is the Lord's will for him to go to Jerusalem. There is, of course, the detail that Luke really doesn't talk about here in, in, in Acts, but we've noted, uh, because it's made clear in some of the epistles, uh, Paul has kind of a, a purpose in going to Jerusalem, kind of a, a physical purpose, and that is he is delivering this uh, benevolent aid 
to the to the needy saints there in Jerusalem. There's a terrible time of famine and lots of difficulty going on, and so uh, there's a practical purpose for him to go. Uh, but there's kind of a, a a higher reason and purpose for him to go, and it seems like the Lord's hand is in that. Now that causes us some trouble when we come to a verse like this, because it then says through the Spirit, all these other people are telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. So do we have here some kind of a conflict that the Spirit's saying one thing to Paul and that the Spirit's saying something else to these other people? Or how do we reconcile all of that? The way I look at this, um, and, and I don't know how, uh, you know, if this is accurate, but you think about how, you know, what exactly was the Spirit revealing to these people? What were they seeing? What kind of impression were they getting from the Spirit? I mean... If the Spirit directly told these people, hey, you need to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and at the same time while telling Paul, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem, that would be a little counterproductive. Right. You know, God is not the God of confusion. He's not. That's right. And so um, what we find you know, later on here, like verse 11, I don't want to steal too much from that, but we hear of the prophet Agabus who, who basically says, listen, Paul, when he gets to Jerusalem, they're going to like tie him up. They're going to bind him. He's going to be taken and put in prison, pretty much. Um, you know, there's a difference in uh, what is stated and then the interpretation of it. Yes. And I think these people were taking what was stated, hey, Paul's going to get to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen, so therefore that must mean you don't need to go to Jerusalem because right. it's going to be hard. Right. So I think the difference is how they interpreted what the Spirit revealed. I think that is the, 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 the main thing here is these people just have... A, these people see really through the way that I think a lot of Americans see things, and that is if there's going to be suffering involved, oh, hmm. well then, no, that's bad. We don't want that. Yeah. We shouldn't do that. We should do everything to avoid that. Uh, you know, we should probably develop a few governmental programs in order to, you know, you know, <laughs> discourage that or soften that. Um, I think that's exactly right. That was their interpretation of these things. You know, I, I, I actually jotted these down just to be reminded. Back in chapter 19, Paul had said, he was resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. Mm. Then in chapter 20, probably even more explicitly, is when he says to the elders uh, at Ephesus that he was constrained by the spirit to go to Jerusalem. Um, so there's no doubt that the spirit is telling him to go, and that's to be done. It's just these people are perceiving that going is going to involve suffering, which is what the Lord had always said was going to be part of Paul's work and his mission, and they just come to the conclusion that that must mean, oh, you shouldn't go. Uh, if nothing else, it is just kind of serving as just additional um, warning to Paul, not to discourage him from going, but it's just to kind of brace him that, that yeah, you're going to be facing some, some trouble and some difficulty uh, when you get there, reinforcing that. Um, this isn't even to take into account even a little bit further in chapter 23, verse 11, that is getting ahead of ourselves. Um, but the Lord himself had even said to him, take courage for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you also must testify about me in Rome. The Lord's you know, seal of approval was on this all along. Uh, and so um, that's how we reconcile all of that. And you know, that's still a thing today. You know, people read things in the Bible. Of course, the, the Scriptures are inspired by the, the Spirit of God. And, you know, the Spirit means one thing. Sometimes folks will read a passage and they interpret it to mean something entirely different. Um, 
that's what's going on here. It's not with the written word. It's more with the, the, the spoken word. Uh, but that misinterpreting, misunderstanding, misapplying of, of uh, God's word, uh, that's always been a problem. Uh, you know, it, that, it's funny you bring that up because sometimes uh, people today, and, and probably have been guilty of this too, but I think if, if we had the Spirit directly telling people exactly what they need to do, we wouldn't have all of the confusion that's out there. Well, apparently that's not true. That's right. <laughs> uh, because there was still, even even then, there was, there was confusion. People didn't understand, you know, what the right thing to do was. Yep. Um, so, we, we're in the same boat uh, when it comes to, we have the Scripture, we have the inspired Word of God, we have everything perfectly revealed to us. Uh, we just need to be careful how we interpret it. Um, we need to look at it through God's eyes and not necessarily the way we would, um, you know, give advice or whatever. If a family member came to me and was like, hey, I'm going to move to one of the, the most dangerous countries in the world to go spread the gospel, I might be like, I don't know if you should do that. You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of scary and, yeah. and you might die. Um, well, yeah, they might. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a very good possibility. But, you know, what's the Lord's will in this? Um, we, we are never told that we are going to be free from suffering and, and free from uh, persecution or, or whatever it is. Well, and, you know, and all this really even just speaks to the fact in, in the illustration that you gave there. It is part of God's will that we're going to suffer and we're going to endure hardship and difficulties and we're going to have to, uh, you know, do dangerous things and mm-hmm. take risks. Um, that's part of that was part of God's will for Paul's life, but, but that's true for all Christians. Uh, maybe not at the same level as Paul or the same types of dangers and difficulties, but you know, through many hardships, we through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It had been said earlier in Acts, and so um, Paul is a living example of, of of that thing. And stuff that you know, you you might make the connection between like like parenting. You ha- you take someone who was raised up and had a really hard life and uh, had to work for everything and and just endured a lot of difficulties and was really poor, whatever. You know, they grow up and have kids and they say, you know, I, I don't want my kids to go without like I did. I, I don't want them to suffer like I did, so I want to give them everything they want. Well, what happens when those kids uh, are become adults? It's like, whoa, life is easy. You know, mm-hmm. everything's just given to me. I don't have to worry about anything um, because they didn't face some of those those hardships and the hard hard times. Um, they, they grow up um, maybe with a sense of entitlement. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just a vicious cycle. Yeah. Um, I think that's what happened in the book of Judges. You know, yeah. the, the people in Joshua's generation, they had to fight. They had to struggle. They had to, you know, fully invest themselves in their trust in God. Whereas by the time of the, you know, when we get to the beginning of the book of Judges, that generation, well, everything was just kind of handed to them. Yeah. You know, they didn't have to fight and struggle to, to seize the land of Canaan. No, it was just, just kind of already given to them. And... Um, there is there's benefit, there's value in the struggle and the difficulty. That's why Paul will write in Romans chapter 5, and uh, James will write about it in James chapter 1. Peter writes about as well how suffering, tribulation, hardship, it helps to build character and endurance and patience and hope and all those qualities that we would not, maybe possibly would never have gotten otherwise. Uh, mm-hmm. Those things are necessary. Uh, and Paul needed those things too. Uh, I don't know what all specifically you know, was being built in him by going through these things, but the Lord knew what he needed. Yeah, you know, so we, we got to think, okay, so what does that mean for me? What, how do I 
go through something that's going to be difficult? Should I just look for every difficult opportunity that comes around and, you know, okay, there's danger, let's go. Yeah. You know, that that might not be the way to approach it. Right. But, like, you think about how how somebody builds strong muscles. You know, could you build strong muscles by going out and living in the woods and have to, like, run away from wild animals and, you know, know, catch a tree that's falling on you, whatever. Yeah, I'm sure that would help build strong muscles. Or you can do exercise right. uh, where you, you have in mind, there's a goal. I'm going to do this thing that's, that might be difficult, that might be awkward, that might be hard, uh, but it's like a controlled environment. Um, and so you have a purpose for growth. And so maybe we need to do spiritual push-ups mm-hmm. or uh, you know, have some kind of goals that we set for ourselves there um, when things aren't so difficult and, and when, when things seem like it's going pretty easy around us um so i I think no matter what we can find ways to grow the maybe there's the takeaway and it's the takeaway here in in acts 21 is we just shouldn't always be looking to try to resist and get away from Mm. from difficulty sometimes we need to welcome that and see that as a as an opportunity um and in this particular case, it's going to serve as an opportunity for the gospel with Paul. Uh, speaking here about you know the, the time here with Tyree, the, the brothers and sisters there, we get kind of this little tender uh, moment with them at the conclusion of this week with them, verse 5. When our days there were ended, which maybe this is just a good reminder, that in a lot of these travels, you know, especially by boat, uh, Paul and his companions would have probably been beholden to you know, the captain of the ship who, you know, maybe they're just jumping aboard like a cargo ship that's just trying to get, you know, they got, you know, they got destinations they got to make, they've got deadlines that they've got to to meet. And so, hey, we're kind of on his timetable. And I think that's kind of what's even indicated by that phrase when our days there were ended. In other words, when our time was up, when the captain said it was time to go, we had to go. We then departed and we went on our journey and they all, the brothers and sisters there at, at, at Tyree, with their wives and their children, They accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Um, What we have there in verse 5 is actually an apostolic example to take the preacher to the beach. (laughs) That's what that means. (laughs) Nailed it. Yes. You should take your preacher to the beach. Uh, Acts 21 (laughs) verse 5 says so. No, that's not what that says, but it would be nice if you did. Um, but there is uh, this is just a sweet little moment. We've gotten a couple of these. Certainly, what happened in chapter twenty when Paul, you know, prayed with the Ephesian elders there uh, was was emotional, and this seems to be kind of an emotional and tender moment uh, as well. And just especially the mention there that 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 the the wives and the children came too, uh, mm-hmm. which may say something to us about how maybe Paul was not as you know hard nosed and stoic as we think he is. Maybe he did get along with the. You know the little kids and the and the women folk. You know liked him as well, and uh, that yeah. Well, that just that common picture of Paul that people try to paint today is probably just not very accurate. But um, this is just the love of brethren, um, and and I know that uh, I, I've, I've experienced this in my life before when I'll be invited to go like preaching a gospel meeting for a week and be there. You know, from like I get there on Saturday and I'm there through Friday night. After you've labored with a group of folks, especially if you've stayed in the home of some Christians for that week, and you get to go be in other people's homes, and you're going and visiting folks, and you're studying with folks, and of course you're coming to services, and spending time in the Word every night each week, and you're involved in this focused spiritual pursuit for a full week, man, by the end of that, 
yeah, you, you, you want to get, I know I want to get home to my family, but there's also, it's, a, it's kind of a, a bitter parting uh, because we have, we have bonded and, and worked together in the most important enterprise that we could ever be involved in. And that is in the work of the kingdom, and and so there is there's there's tears and there's uh, there's you know it's 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 a parting is such sweet sorrow kind of thing when that when it gets to the end of the way, but it, it, that's just the nature of life. We got to go and we got other places to go and other things to do. Paul was no different. Yeah, and you think Paul he had seven days there. He he might have went into it thinking. Well, I don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm just gonna, you know, relax this week and, and sort of just lay off, and I, I don't have to like look up the brethren here, you know. Do I do I have to find a church where I'm going, like for the vacation for the week? Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna be there long. Well, I, I, I mean, think he's at the beach after all. Right? <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> just enjoy the waves, you know. But no, he he thought that that was something that was valuable, um, and and he did that. Um, sometimes I think that. We we think well I just need a break I'm I'm just I'll go here for a week and, and not worry about it or well, you know there's things we could do anywhere uh, and so I, I think that we can definitely focus in um, even if it's a time of leisure um, with you know keeping in mind we still worship God yeah there's, there's no vacation from the Lord um, right. that that that's a 24/7 365 that that never stops wherever we are whatever we're doing. Um, so verse 7 then, uh, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers, and then we stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed, and we came to Caesarea, notice this, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, hey, here's a familiar face we haven't seen in, what, 13 chapters now, and thought that he was just completely off the page of Scripture. No, we get the reintroduction to, to Philip. This is the same Philip who had, uh, as, as is mentioned here, he was one of the original seven that was chosen to serve the tables in Jerusalem. And then, of course, in uh, chapter 8, probably more famously, uh, he's the one who you know goes into Samaria and does preaching there. And then, of course, he's out in the middle of the desert. And he converts the, the Ethiopian eunuch. It's, it's that Philip. Um, couple of things I want to just say about this. First of all, we get the specific mention here, and this is where we, I know sometimes when I say Philip, to kind of differentiate him from the Apostle Philip, I will just use this expression that's used in verse 8, Philip the Evangelist. Mm. That's an interesting term because it's actually only used a couple of other places in the New Testament. And I'm going to kind of bring this up because... It's not even really clear what specifically that involves. That it, as if somehow that's a different function or a different role than you know someone who is just called a preacher, uh, or even the term minister as it's used. And that's probably even a more generic term uh, to just describe someone who serves. Um, but I say that because there are some folks who I think kind of want to give very specific definitions and parameters of what this term evangelist means. And I'm just going to say that if you try to do that from the Bible, you're probably going to have a hard time doing that. Um, You know, Paul says to Timothy in in, in his letter, you know, do the work of an evangelist. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about how God gave the church these different gifts, and one of them was evangelist. And then we have this mention of evangelist, and that's that's about it. Somebody, somebody, I've heard somebody say once before, well, if you're an evangelist, then what that means is that means you're somebody 
who goes abroad. You're someone who, who goes into other places and you're involved in preaching the word you know, abroad and you, know, you maybe don't even have like a, 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 a local church that you work with on a full-time basis. You're just always everywhere. Well, I, I'm going to have a problem with saying that that's the definition of that because where's Philip here? Philip's at home, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, uh, others have tried to put other kind of parameters on that, and I just think that we, we just ought not do that. I, I think it can mean a lot of different things, and I even think just scripturally that's probably uh, where it's going to land, that it can mean any number of things. Uh, the work of evangelism and how we share the, the gospel of Christ, it's not limited to, well, if it's just in this one place, you're called this, or if you're going everywhere, it's called this. Um, I just don't think you find that here in the Bible. No, I, I don't think so. And, and you there's know, there's a sense in which all of us are to be this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? There, there's a a lot of Bible concepts that say if if you are a Christian, then one of the things you do, you're going to tell people about Jesus. Yeah, uh, that I think that's that's definitely an expectation that's set. You know, we we talk a lot. Uh, well, I, we have here uh, about evangelism and what that looks like and what that means. Um, you know, the word evangelism isn't even in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you don't see that. Um, but I, I was doing a, a lesson on evangelism just the other day, and it was funny. Afterward, my daughter came up to me and was like, Dad, did you know that the word angel is in evangelism? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's really good. And, I mean, that's just one who has a message. Yeah. Uh, and I think we all should have a message. Um, and, you know, sometimes we, we get into, you know, word studies and, and we overcomplicate things. But just keep in mind, it's, we have a message and we need to share it. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. Well, the other thing I wanted to say about Philip here is it is, I don't know if you want to use the word ironic. I don't know if you want to use the word serendipitous. I don't know if you want to use the word providential. Whatever word you want to use to describe this, it is interesting to think about that Philip, really the very reason that he was off preaching in Samaria and then out in the middle of a desert preaching is because he was ran out of Jerusalem by the very guy who is now staying in his house. <laughs> so the guy who was the persecutor that caused Philip to have to flee his home in Jerusalem originally Philip has now opened his home to that very same guy. This is probably about you know, 20 years later or so, I think, depending on you know, give or take a, a year or two on either side of that. Um, so, so some time certainly has passed. And certainly you would hope, you know, not just Philip, but most of the other Christians have uh, come to, um, you know, forgive Paul for his former manner of life and have accepted him fully as a brother. And Philip is doing that here. Um, you know, there's no mention whatsoever that there was animosity or that Philip is doing this begrudgingly. I know he's a Christian now. I don't really want to because, you know, he calls me and my family to have to pack up everything and go, you know, thinking about if he had these four daughters that are mentioned here in verse 9, maybe they were all little girls at the time and now they're grown women. And man, just... Pick up four 
kids and moving, you know, on the spur of the moment. That'd be tough to do, but there's none of that. These are brothers in Christ working together. Philip is using his home as a station for Paul to, to come and to, uh, to be with him. And we've noted from previous chapters how important that was for uh, folks to open up their home to Paul and Paul have kind of a base of operations. Aquila and Priscilla, we talked about them. And uh, Philip is serving that same role here. Uh, what do you want to say about Philip? I mean, you just see forgiveness exemplified in that example. The gospel transforms people. Yeah. I mean, it, it changes people. Um, and, and Philip definitely witnessed that firsthand. Uh, we, we know from what we have heard about him. You know, it's, it's kind of weird when you, you leave somebody like 20 years ago and it's like, whoa, here, here he is again. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you wonder, what has he been doing? through that time period and, and what's, what's his life been like and um, you know again we sometimes we want to compare ourselves to Paul and, and be like wow well, you know I'm not traveling to all these foreign countries well Philip may have been there at Caesarea for the past you know several years mm -hmm. um, but you get he calls him the evangelist you get the idea that he was still active yeah and so there, there's things that we can all do and, and we need to stay active uh, and uh, I, I think the implication is get our family involved too, mm -hmm. um, because he, even though he had daughters, and sometimes we we think you know women, you know what what are they going to do? Well, a lot. Yeah. Uh, and so well, let's just read that verse, verse yeah. nine. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Um, yeah. They now they had a very special uh, gift that um, I'm not persuaded that. Uh, women or, or men would be able to possess today in the sense that these young ladies uh, had the ability to do. Um, I think this is speaking of the miraculous gift of, of, of prophesying. Right. Um, this is a good place, though, to point out that, that the gifts were not all limited just to men. Mm -hmm. uh, there were women that were endowed with certain of those gifts. You read the, the first Corinthian letter, and there's, there's obviously indication that there were women who had some of those gifts as well. Uh, but this, all, of course, was also part of the prophecy that, that Joel had uttered and Peter repeated in Acts chapter 2, yeah. uh, that you know God's Spirit would, would come upon uh, your sons and your daughters, all kinds of different people. It wouldn't just be you know, one type of person. It would be different kinds of people. And uh, so they served in, an important role, whether it was with that church at, at you know, Caesarea or uh, some other place. Um, the mention there of them being uh, unmarried or them being, I think, virgins, I think is how other translations say it, yeah. uh, I, I think may possibly even be indicative of the fact that these young ladies possibly had had purposely chosen not to be married so that they could be devoted to this work. You know, it would be kind of, in that culture especially, it was a little bit different if there was a woman who was unmarried. And especially mm -hmm. in this case, for a guy to have four daughters and all of them be unmarried, yeah. unless it was for a specific purpose. And this seems like this would be a very specific and helpful purpose. I think about what Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, when he talked about the idea that um, you know it, it may be better for certain people to remain unmarried like himself 
so that he could be more devoted to, to, to things of the kingdom. And uh, there, so there may have been, it may not be that these four girls were all just, you know, ugly and couldn't find husbands. <laughs> uh, it may have been, they may have been beautiful young ladies and everybody wanted to marry them, but they didn't because they were using the gifts God had given them to be of, uh, of great benefit to the early church. We need to be careful how we're uh, handling our family. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, just in, in that short snippet of what we see about Philip's daughters, it's like, man, he must have done a pretty good job mm-hmm. as a father. Uh, and so sometimes I think people who are, are very devoted to the gospel neglect their family. Um, and, and that's sad. Uh, but I think that uh, most people have encountered that at some point in yeah. their lives. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, and, and we can definitely change that and be, be like a Philip. Um, so pretty cool. Well, we're then, we're then introduced to this that you kind of gave a little teaser about, uh, a few moments ago about this prophet named Agabus, verse 10, while we were staying for many days, still here at Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Um, this is, um, probably uh, the same Agabus that we met back at the end of chapter 11 uh, who had stood up and he had foretold by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine over uh, all the world. Um, I'm going to assume it's the same guy. Uh, he's prophesying then, he's prophesying here. It's not, it doesn't seem like a very common name. Mm-hmm. Um, so he comes down and verse 11, coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, what Agabus does here is it really seems really Old Testament-ish. <laughs> yeah. Because there are lots of these prophets in the Old Testament who did lots of these kind of visual illustrations. You know, they would bring these messages from God and it wasn't just with with words. It would be with you know like a you know some kind of a you know show and tell. You know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to show you this, and I'm going to give you a, a, a visual demonstration of, of of what's going on here. Uh, I think about you know Jeremiah with the dirty underwear, or you know <laughs> Ezekiel was to build the little model of Jerusalem and you know yeah. set it on fire or smash it into pieces and. Uh, you know all these other examples of this, and that's what he's doing here. He comes, and I don't know. This, this maybe would have been kind of ominous. You know, he just kind of goes up to Paul, takes his his belt. You know, I don't know if it was an actual like, leather belt like we wear, or maybe it was more of like a like a rope. I don't know. Yeah. But just takes it, and then begins to tie himself up. And maybe as he's doing that, then just says, "This is what's going to happen." To the man who owns this belt when he comes into Jerusalem, this is what the people are going to do to him. Um, that, that would have been kind of a, it would have set a somber tone if you were in that, uh, in the, the, the company and, or in the house or wherever this took place. And actually, that does seem to be what happens. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And so, just like those brethren were doing back in Tyre, now the people here in Caesarea, and look at the, the pronouns again, we. You know, so now even Luke, and maybe even mm. some of the other companions, now they're kind of joining in and saying, yeah, okay, we've been on the road with Paul, and we're just going with him wherever he goes, but 
man, I don't know, now we got a prophet coming and he's doing this stuff right in front of our eyes and it's kind of freaking us out a little bit. And I don't know, we're putting all these layers upon layers of, of, of proof of what's going to happen to Paul. And Paul, we just don't think this is a good idea. I think it's a very natural yeah. thing, again, that just shows their love for, uh, for their brother who you know, they've come to, 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 to love and appreciate so very much. And hey, man, you know, we, we need you, Paul. You know, the kingdom needs you. We don't want you to go to Jerusalem and you know, this, you're, you're, everything about your life and your service to the Lord comes to an end there. You know, they don't know what's going what's gonna to happen next. Um, and so there's a natural concern here, which it, you, I don't know, this is, if I'd have thought of Acts chapter 21, I would not have thought of it as being a chapter about like, brotherly love. But there really is, even just hearing these first you know, 12 verses, there's just yeah. so many examples of it between the, the, the affection of the brethren at Tyre, the brethren here, just the opening up of the home of Philip, even with the checkered past that Paul would have had with, uh, with, with, with him and the others. Uh, this, is what, this is what Christians Hello. do. Yeah, we see a lot of interconnected ideas of what Christians are and what it looks like. We mentioned evangelism a little bit ago, spreading the gospel, but we also see the love. And, you know, what was it that Jesus told his disciples? How will people know that you are disciples? It's because of the love that they have for each other. And so, even though we might, it might not come out and say, here in this chapter, now we see love in this. Yeah. We see love in this. We see love everywhere. Yeah. Um, and so when we think, you know, love is, is a very abstract concept. What, what does it even mean? What does it look like? Well, it looks like looks care like and concern. It looks like that. Yep. Exactly. And so what, what do we need to do? How do we need to act and respond to people? Uh, in love, I mean, just genuine care for our brothers and sisters. Um, I think, in just in general, we need to care about each other more. We mm -hmm. need to be involved in each other's lives more. Um, I think too often we try to live our separate lives, and it's like as long as I'm not bothering anybody, I'm okay. Well, that's not what it's about. It's about just getting involved with yeah. people. Well, um, Paul's heartstrings are clearly being tugged at in his response here in verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I, I, I almost think there's kind of some indication here that Paul, you know, at least his, his emotional side or his, just his, his earthly side is almost saying, I'm almost convinced to just listen to you guys, you know, and to not go forward. Um, but then he says, "Here's, here's also here's now here's the here's the spirit of Paul, uh, the mind at work." He says, "For I am ready, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus." Verse fourteen. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, "Let the will of the Lord be done." Um, just the uh, passion that Paul has for being like Jesus. Um, th there is, these are strong uh, shadows of, of 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 Jesus. You know, think about when Jesus had told the disciples, you know, I must go to Jerusalem, mm. and and when I do, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten, and all these terrible things are going to happen to me. And you know what? There was even an occasion where Peter jumped in and said, No, 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 Lord. That's not going to happen. No, we won't allow that to happen. That's never going to happen. And of course, he gets a rebuke. You get behind me, Satan. Hmm. Uh, but that's kind of what's happening here with Paul. Paul, I, I got to go. And I, I know it's necessary for me to do that, even though all these people are saying, No, don't go, don't go, don't go. Um, Paul 
He wants to be like Christ, and he is getting the opportunity to be like Jesus, uh, even, even willing to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Powerful stuff. It, it is, man. And it just it rocks you to the core. You, you, just, you think about what this would have been like, to be there, to be one of the people who is there. And, and, I mean, it's just you see Paul as being this, this great godly example. And uh, you see his response to them, um, but but then they realize that. I think that the statement that they make in verse fourteen, um, you know, they realize, okay, we're not going to be able to convince Paul of of our viewpoint. Um, and I think Paul was just such a good example of doing the will of God no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they they finally say, okay, the will of the Lord be done. Um, you know that, that was a great attitude to have. Um, you, you don't know really what was going on behind the scenes, you know, in their mind where they really think it was like, oh, come on, Paul, will you just do this? Um, but you, you do see because Paul was such a good example, um, they they realized, okay, he, he's made up his mind. He's he's doing this for the Lord, and so we need to be supportive, mm-hmm. even if I don't agree with it, even yeah. if I don't like it. Um, it's it, it's for the glory of, of God. Yeah, and it, and that's the way it has to be. You know, whether there's lots of things that it may not be my preference. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, that's not really what I would want. But if that's what the Lord wills, then okay. At the end of the day, then, then that's what I want done as well. I want God's will to be done because. He knows exactly what needs to be done. He knows it better than I know. Uh, you know, I, I'm only seeing things from a, you know, very narrow perspective. You know, I'm only able to see kind of, you know, six inches from my nose. You know, that's about as far as I can see. Uh, but the Lord's able to see the big picture, past, present, and future, and He's able to see how it all works together. And so uh, that's why, and that's why that's a great expression to to probably use more in our lives, and certainly to be. Uh, filling our prayers up with for at least when we're talking about things that we that we don't know God's explicit will for we want to just pray that God's will be done even you know Jesus when he prayed in the garden um, you know my preference is that we could do this some other way but nevertheless your will be done and um, you know even even th- this is not like I don't even think you know Paul here is not like just kind of resigning himself to to this um, I think this is Paul has just a he has a determined belief that the Lord is not going to steer him into some wrong direction. Mm-hmm. God's not going to lead me into some place that's going to turn out terrible and it's going to be this terrible end and nothing good's going to come from it. No, Paul is fully confident that yeah, even if there's pain along the way, wherever the Lord's leading me, it's exactly where I need to go. And and so I want to do that. I want to be. I want to hitch my wagon, you know, to his truck, and and that's where I want to go. And um, and we have people here uh, at the end of verse fourteen that are saying, yeah, well, that's what we want to then. So verse fifteen. After these days, we got ready, and we went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of uh, Manazan, or I'm, I think probably, probably just supposed to be pronounced with an N. Is that what you think? Probably. So. I think it's just Nazan of Cyprus. That's a weird way to say that name, but that's what we're going to say. Nazan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. You mentioned a little bit earlier about, you know, sometimes women are, are told or led to think that they don't have a role in the kingdom. Sometimes that's also said about uh, elderly folks uh, who are Christians. 
Uh, I think the indication here when it says that this guy was an early disciple, you know, we're not told specifically how old he was, but I think that's probably an indication he was an older one, yeah. an older brother. And he served an important function. He's opening up his house for Paul and, and obviously for uh, the, the rest of his companions to be able to, to stay with. Um, I also think, think about this from the perspective of Luke, as Luke is the, the one keeping the minutes of all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who's going to write what we're reading here. I'm willing to bet that Luke would have really wanted to sit at the feet of Brother Nazan and learn from him. Because he might be able to help give some details of the things that I'm going to write when I write these things to my friend Theophilus. He's going to be able to fill in some uh, gaps of things that I, I, certainly I could get those things from the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to fill in whatever gaps need to be filled. But you know what? I think this also may possibly speak to the fact that God also uses use natural means to impart his his word. You know, here is this brother who'd been around from from the beginning. And he maybe saw some things that, you know, lots of others who came along years later, you know, we're right about 58 A.D. So we're going on 30 years into the church's history, but this guy's been around since day one. Um, And so he's probably got some insights and some things to share. I may be reading way more into all of that one little verse than what's, uh, you know, supposed to be intended there, but it's hard for me not to think about that and just the, the, the language that Luke uses to describe this brother. Well, you usually do that with all the verses. So I, I do. Don't worry about I that do. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the reason we go on for two hours at a time. <laughs> Maybe so. But no, I, I think that there is a lot to be said about um, sometimes it seems like there's an age gap um, with local congregations, um, even of, of people who you just you, you associate with people in your age bracket. Mm-hmm. Um, but so many times we have examples of, you know, the older teach the younger. The, the younger need to learn from, from the older. Yep. Um, and, and you think about, you know, the whole idea of Christianity is to, to function as a unit. Uh, we're all doing this stuff together. Um, you know, the wisdom of the old mixed with the, you know, the vigor and strength of, of the young that's when we have the combination. We shouldn't have, uh, you know, a group of older people who just know everything but don't do anything with it. And we shouldn't have a group of young people that lack the wisdom and experience but think they know everything and, and just go however they want to. Yeah. You know, we, we work together to help. E- and I'm, I'm being very stereotypical with how I'm talking about this. But uh, that extreme shows, though, that I think that we have this this gap in, in a lot of places, mm-hmm. and we just need to work together to uh, you know respect the older and, and older, and, you know, reach out to the younger. And that all needs and, and that needs to manifest itself outside of the four walls for when the church comes together mm, yep. two or three times a week for for worship. Yeah, okay, we're all together and we're we're working together for those few hours a week when we're worshiping collectively as the church. But that's not really where you're going to bridge those those age gaps. Right. That needs to be bridged outside of here. Certainly in our, our conversations that take place before and after services. I know our, our tendency sometimes is to go and talk and 
you know, hang out with the people that are our contemporaries or the people that we have the most in common with. And, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but we don't want to do that to the neglect of others, and in particular, uh, those that we could, uh, you know, learn from if we're younger or those that we could, I mean, we could also learn from as well if we're older. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then that you want that to expand out, you know, where we're spending time together in each other's homes, where we're, um, you know, involved in spiritual pursuits together. Uh, I, I've been involved uh, a few different times in, in Bible studies with, uh, with an older brother, and, and we go and have a study with someone. And I just really like that dynamic. And I almost think, actually, that, that I remember the couple times I was involved in those like that, the person we were studying with, seem to appreciate, hey, I'm getting studied with this older guy, and here's this younger guy. And they both kind of got their own, you know, perspectives on things from, uh, you know, where they are in life. But just great things happen when, we, when we're working together. And it does help mm -hmm. to bring about greater unity within a local congregation. And it gets people involved. It helps especially with, there's just this tendency, not just in the church, but just in the world in general, then once you reach like a certain age, well, it's time to just take you out back and just you know shoot you and put you down because you ain't good for anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We need to, to, to make sure that our older brothers and sisters understand that, just like I said earlier, there's not a vacation from the Lord. Well, there's also no retirement plan you know, in Christianity yeah. either. Amen. Uh, we're in this, you know, be faithful unto death, Jesus says. And so we need to be finding uh, ways, and older people need to be intentional about finding ways to stay involved and connected and uh, make use of the talents and the abilities that they have uh, even when they start having the silver in their hair and reaching the twilight years. May not be able to do everything they once were able to do. For all I know, this guy, you know, Nason, he may have been just banging it out and doing everything in his younger days, but now here in his older days, Maybe doesn't have the same energy or health, but but he's got a house. Yeah. He's got a house big enough for you know Paul and all these companions. I mean, we were talking about a dozen people in his traveling party here. Um, been blessed. I'm gonna make use of that and, and have that be useful for the for, for the work of the kingdom. Yeah, I heard someone mention once it's um, it's not so much as retirement as it is repurposement. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you, you do retire from your secular work or, you know, some kind of job that, that you are beholden to a certain number of hours per week, but what does that open you up to? What are you able to do with that extra time? Yeah. Uh, you know, lay on the beach all day? Um, or, you know, are there other things that you can be involved in? And I, I think um, that's the way we see a lot of the disciples, the early disciples, think. Yeah. You know, they think about what more can I do for the Lord? So I think we need to be thinking along those lines as well. Well, so uh, all of that, um, I think, is probably where if you're going to kind of mark this out, I think we would say this is where the third preaching journey maybe officially comes to an end. Because when we come to verse 17 now, we have arrived in Jerusalem. So when we had come to Jerusalem, verse 17, the brothers received us gladly. Probably a couple of reasons they received them gladly. Number one, we always see that good, warm reception when Paul and the people that he's been traveling with come and they're going to bring a report of the things they've done, so there's the gladness of that. But let's remind ourselves as well, they've brought aid 
uh, with them. And so I think that probably is, you know, enhancing the, the, the gladness and the excitement about them coming because they've come to bring uh, relief to, to the brethren in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Verse 18, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. This is presumably the same James that we I think was met in the last part of chapter 12, and then of course was mentioned in chapter 15. Uh, this is the brother of the Lord, the brother of Jesus, the physical brother of Jesus, who seems to be certainly a leader in, in the, the church at Jerusalem and may have been an elder himself. Um, and even just the mention here of James and all the elders were present, James is going to kind of seem like he's kind of maybe more of the spokesman of, of the brethren there. Verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That's Paul. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. I'll just stop right there before we start looking at this particular plan that James has in mind about how to, how to deal with this. Um, so they hear you know, all the, the good things that Paul's done, specifically the good work that he's done amongst the Gentiles. But James then presents the concern um, that he's aware of. I, I probably would want to just make very clear that the things that I think that James is saying here in verses 20 and 21 about um, you know, about teaching the Gentiles to forsake Moses and don't circumcise your children or walk according to our customs, um, I don't think that's what James believed. Um, I think he's just given voice to what many of the other Jewish brethren believe. And he recognizes that that's going to cause Paul some trouble with, with, with those folks. Again, we're, we're here kind of where this all started. We're here in, you know, Jew Central, <laughs> since we're back here in Jerusalem. Um, and so there is, you know, legitimate concern about how to address this and to deal with this. Um, of course, Paul is, is making his way to Jerusalem because he's wanting to be there in time for Pentecost. We haven't said that in this particular uh, chapter, but we noted that a couple chapters ago, um, which may kind of bring to our mind, well, well hold on. You know, I, I thought Paul's a Christian. Hmm. Yeah. Why, why is he concerned about Pentecost and all of this sort of stuff? Well, maybe what we need to be reminded of here is that being a Jew kind of carried with it dual meaning. Yes, it carried with it a Jew in the religious sense, but even if you did not follow the Jewish religion, you still were a Jew nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul still was a Jew in the national sense. Uh, and there were um, just obligations and things that went along with that as a Jew. This is like you know us as Americans. You know, when I became a Christian, uh, I didn't stop being an American. Uh, maybe what changed is my priority of what I identified myself as changed because I'm first and foremost now a Christian uh, and somewhere on that list is, is I'm also an American. Um, but that does mean I still have you know, obligations as an American and as a citizen and Paul still was uh, a Jewish man and so there is um, 
some some need to be here in Jerusalem and to be around uh, these people. Um, the things that he's being going to be accused of and that James wants to make him aware of are things that purely have to do with, and I think this last little expression in verse 21 sums it up, it has to do with the customs yeah. of, of, of Judaism. This is not about things that pertain to salvation. Uh, that matter was settled fully and finally in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem conference. Not that it wasn't settled long before that, but as far as everyone being on the same page about it, chapter 15 kind of made that abundantly clear. Um, but this has to do with Jewish customs and, and, and practices that just went along with, uh, with, with you know, Jewish life. And um, for, for many of the Jews in Jerusalem, even these Jewish Christians, it seems as if there was some difficulty in separating that out from Christianity. Mm -hmm. You know, we look at this and it's been very clear to us. I mean, come on, you're a Christian now. You don't need this Judaism stuff. It's over with. But it wasn't so easy for those folks. And we've tried to kind of bring that up from time to time in, in previous chapters that most of these folks, or at least a lot of these folks, did not just become a Christian and they just dropped everything about their former manner of life. There was not just that clean break. There may have been that clean break for some folks, but for a lot of them there was not that clean break. Uh, and so it was difficult for them to, to understand why, especially someone at the forefront like a Paul or a Peter or one of these other apostles, that they're not just, you know, kowtowing to all of these other Jewish things while also preaching, you know, salvation and the things that are made possible through Jesus. Um, James says, Paul, we're, we're going to have to figure out how we, we deal with this here. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that you made it very clear, and I appreciate how you discussed this, but it's, it's more of a, a matter of uh, your national identity uh, versus your religious you know, beliefs, mm -hmm. because we did settle that earlier. Um, you do not need to become a Jew to become a Christian. That would, that would be like, you know, me and you as Americans going into Africa or Russia or Mexico and saying, you need to become an American before you become a Christian. Take the citizenship or, test. Right, yeah. yeah. It's like, what do you do on July 4th? You know, um, <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing. But then again, we as Christians can't go to Americans and say, oh, you, you celebrate the Independence Day? Yeah. You're a Christian. You can't be doing that. You know that that's not it either. You know um, we can't, as you said, we can't put our national identity above our Christianity. We're a Christian first. Um, you know, America is just a country, and you know, eventually, whether it's in our lifetime or before the end of time or at the end of time, it's going to end mm -hmm. because the greatest kingdom of all is is the kingdom of, of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but but that that being said. Um, we don't have to denounce America to be a Christian either. And I think that's the issue here. There's a place where those can work together, you know, yeah. and, 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 and be in conjunction. And it doesn't require us to denounce our American heritage or nationality or whatever other nation we may, you know, live and right. dwell in. You know, again, yeah. let's, that's always, it always makes me very uncomfortable uh, the way that some... American Christians talk about their, mm -hmm. you know, patriotism, and I'm not saying patriotism's wrong or bad, but I don't know. There's times where it comes across almost like the way some of these Jews that we're reading about in, in Acts felt about their their, their Judaism, mm -hmm. where it just gets elevated above 
everything else. And that is, I don't, I don't, I'm not just going to say that's dangerous. I'm going to say that's just wrong. And we yeah. can't be, be about that at all. True. Yep. Um, so, uh, all right. So, so, so how are we going to deal with uh, the, the obvious, you know, brick wall that we're going to come up against here when, when, People learn that Paul's here. He's in town. We've heard a lot about this guy, and we've heard, you know, some things he's been doing. And of course, a lot of that has been like telephone. By the time it's got back to Jerusalem, eh, you're getting—that's not even accurate what you're saying. Paul wasn't telling people to forsake Moses. Uh, Paul wasn't telling people don't circumcise your children. It wasn't what he was saying. He wasn't saying do that. He wasn't even telling people that you needed to give up all of the customs or traditions of Judaism. Um, but that's sometimes the way that that works. When it's you know you tell this person, they tell another person, they tell another person. And by the time it gets back, oh, he's just anti everything. Yeah. No, that's not true. Um, so verse twenty three. Here's what we're going to tell you to do. We have four men who are under a vow. This is. Some have conjectured, once again, we talked about a vow a couple chapters ago that Paul was under. Some have conjectured that this maybe could have been a Nazarite vow as well, and we talked a little bit about that in whatever chapter that was. Um, These men are under a vow, verse 24. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Of course, the... Anything to do with the head and hair is why people immediately just jump to almost be a Nazarite vow. Um, Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So the idea here, it seems to be, is that, Paul, we're going to try to kind of set you up to where people can have a visual... You know, demonstration and see in you, just physically, just looking at you and the things you're doing and what you look like, that you are ingratiated into the Jewish culture and you're fitting in. And we're going to see here in just a moment that Paul seems to be fine going through with all of this. And I think what this speaks to, and I don't know whether this is what you know James had in mind. Maybe James had something kind of more something more covert in mind here. But I could tell you what Paul probably had in mind is Paul's just like, yeah, okay, whatever. Become yeah. all things to all men. Yeah. You know, that's what it takes. We saw Paul do this with Timothy. You know, going to come into an area where there's going to be, you know, a largely Jewish population. All right, well, let's just go get Timothy circumcised. That way he can fit in and have a better door of the gospel to be opened up. And I think that's the way Paul probably saw this thing, this thing about, you know, going through with this the, the purification rituals and so forth and uh, being with these other guys who've been doing this vow. Yeah, whatever. Okay, fine. If that's going to give me a, a better audience with uh, these Jewish brethren, then, yeah, let's... Let's do that. No big deal. Um, this would be like, you know, we talked about it when we were in some of those other chapters. Um, you know, if I'm going overseas, if I'm going into the Middle East, if I'm in Iraq, uh, and I've got my wife with me, I, I'm going to probably encourage her to put put on the burqa. Yeah. It, it, it's not what she necessarily prefer to do, uh, especially this time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, but... If that's going to help us to, to fit in better and to not you know stick out and cause people to just be resistant to us, um, then yeah, that's a small, pretty simple thing to do in order to be able to to, to, to gain a hearing uh, with people and, and have them uh, be willing to actually listen to you uh, when the opportunity uh, presents itself. Yeah, I think there's a clear distinction between making compromises of faith, yeah. um, you know, doing shady things to, well, well, I'm doing this, 
uh, I know it, it would be wrong to, uh, you know, do drugs, but I'm going to go to this party where people are doing drugs because I'm going to get close to them. So, no, don't do that. I right. mean, duh. But, you know, is it too much to ask? I, I, I hate baseball. I'm just going to come out and say it. I'm sorry Uh-oh. if this offends people. Oh, man. Um, but if, if there was someone, uh, that, you know, I, I was spending time with teaching the gospel and they're like, Hey, you want to go to this baseball game with me? After I say no, I want to come back and say, actually, you know what? Yeah, let's do that. Um, because sometimes it's not always about what I want yep. <laughs> and that it is becoming first Corinthians nine, all things to all men. Um, it's, it's never about compromising our faith. It's about uh, being more approachable and, and knowing who we're trying to teach and trying to be around. I, I don't care for baseball either anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a baseball fan when I was a kid. Mark McGuire was my favorite athlete as a kid, and it was really because he was the first athlete that I noticed who was good, and he was redheaded. <laughs> That'll do it. And there weren't yep. any redheaded good athletes, and so he was he was my hero for for a long time. But anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, you would you would you would let's go do that, and and probably in between then and the game, you'd probably be getting on Wikipedia and learning about baseball <laughs> so that you can talk about it intelligently. But again, it's right. it's to be able to have a bridge to reach folks, and um, Paul did that. He didn't just write about that. Here's an example of him actually being willing to, to, to do that and follow through with it. Um, James continues on in verse 25. He says, But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. I think that's a reference to that letter that they had sent in Acts 15. Verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and he went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul goes through all of this, and I, I'm not really in a position to try to describe all of the purification uh, rituals and what all you know was uh, the significance of all of that. But uh, again, the point is, these are things that would ingratiate himself and endear himself, at least to some degree, with with brethren who already were predisposed to not like him. You know, <laughs> yeah. we've just heard some stuff. And this is what we think about him. We've already prejudged him. Paul's going to do these things to try to help kind of bring their defenses down a little bit so that they'll be willing to to give him a fair hearing. Verse 27, when those seven days, evidently the purification stuff lasted seven days, when that was almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So so Paul's in the temple to to do all the the, the purification things that he's supposed to be doing. Uh, And he's in the area of the temple where only certain people were allowed to be. Of course, the, the temple courtyard or the, the temple complex was this series of, of kind of layers and courtyards. There was the outer court where, where, where Gentile folks, Greek folks, would have been allowed to come and 
you know, they can make an offering and, and do those sorts of things. Um, there was the court of the women, the area where women would be allowed to go. Jewish women could go and they could make their offerings and so forth. Then as you kind of progress a little bit further, then there was this, this more inner court for, for the men, for Jewish men. And even around, you know, those layers of the courtyard, there were signs that would be posted that would say, you know, Gentiles do not enter. You know, uh, there's some 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 literature. I don't know, it was Josephus or some others that I'd read before, where those those signs would state specifically. You know, if, if you're not a Jew, you, you are risking your life by, by crossing this yeah. border. And so um, they see Paul, and that immediately catches uh, their attention. And then there's this mention of he's, he's brought these he brought these Greeks into the temple. He's brought these other people here, these these Gentile folks who don't have any business being in here. Help, 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 distress, distress. Something needs to be done. It's you know, we're we're defiling this this thing that uh, is so sacred to us. You know the fact of the matter is, uh, the temple, as far as it having any kind of true religious significance, at least to God, it was done. I mean, we're well past that. Of course, God's going to bring full judgment on this temple uh, here in like 10 or 12 years in A.D. Right. 70 with the destruction of the temple. But really, by this point, in the eyes of God, there's, there's nothing special about this place. But again, to these Jews, it's part of our heritage. It's part of who we are. Um, you know, man, this is, this is treason. I mean, this is cause for, uh, well, something's got to be done. We need to lay hands on this guy. You know, there are some people you just can't please. Um, these these Jews from Asia, they're, we've seen them before. They, they did not get along with Paul in the past. Uh, these are the same ones, I think, that had come down to Ephesus right. in chapter 19, if I'm not mistaken. I think that is the same crowd. Um, at least, probably at least some from that crowd. Um, you know, Paul went through all of this in order to to help appease them, to reach them, and, and that sort of thing. I think this goes to show, even when we do the right things, even when we uh, try to reach out to people, sometimes it will backfire, and and sometimes it's not going to go well for us. Um, that should not stop us from trying, because um, sometimes you think, "Well, I've been burned. I don't want to do that again." Um, that should not be our attitude, um, even though. And I think we've seen already Paul's attitude toward this whole situation. He's wanting to do the Lord's will, and he's mm -hmm. wanting to reach more people. And so uh, you could see him putting himself literally on the line here. But uh, even when we do the right thing, sometimes people are not just not going to like it. Because in their mind, what we're doing is not sincere or... Um, you know, they might imagine that we're doing something that we're actually not. Yeah. I should have read verse uh, 29 in connection with this. Uh, you know, they didn't just see a ghost. They, they, they had kind of, at least in their mind, a reason to assume that Paul had brought Gentiles in there because verse 29 says, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with Paul in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Uh, no indication that Paul had actually done that. Um, in fact, knowing Paul, he probably would not have done that. Right. Um, but they just kind of, oh, well, we saw him earlier with this, you know, Gentile guy, so we, he, he must have brought him in here. Oh, 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 you know, we got to do something. <laughs> um, and so there's this, yeah, this, there's a, 
and, and Pride verse twenty nine is a good a good place to just kind of make a point about the danger of making assumptions, you know, yeah. without gathering some data and some mm-hmm. facts and um, drawing correct conclusions. Um, verse thirty, the result of this is that then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. This is, I'm going to say again, this is just eerily resemblant of of what happened with Jesus. You know, when he uh, comes into Jerusalem for that, that final week um, and it doesn't take long before some, some things get said. And, of course, the people initially were all excited about Jesus and how fickle those people became because by the end of the week turned on him, you know, t- turned on a dime. Uh, but the mob mentality uh, and just some things get said and everybody's stirred up and people are running together. They seize Paul. They drag him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, so, whoa, we this is, we went all to DEFCON 5. You know, there's not even like any pretense here of like, well, let's... Let's have you know a, 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 some discussion and some questioning and some maybe a trial if that's necessary. No, we're just going to go straight to killing him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. We noted when we studied the, the Ephesus chapter um, about the riot that took place there mm-hmm. that there was the concern about, you know, well, well what happens when there's you know, a, a riot or the perception of a riot? That's not going to set well with with Rome. That's not going to set well with the, the you know the, the the officials and so forth. So we've got to we got to get that stuff in check. And I think there's some of that same concern uh, here about whoa, hey, we can't have this big the the city being in confusion uh, and and people acting irrationally. No, we need to figure some stuff out. Verse 32. So he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers. They stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So, so here's this fellow who is, you know, he, he's an officer and He's going to put a stop to all the just the you know potential riot, full scale riot breaking out here, yeah. uh, and he's doing the right thing by actually asking, "Hey, Paul, didn't say Paul. Hey, buddy, who are you? I don't know you. Yeah. Uh, what is it that you've evidently done? Why why is all these people so mad at you and wanting to to beat you to death? Uh, he can't even like hear him to have the discussion with him. There's such an uproar. So the mention here of taking him into the barracks, I think, is probably just uh, just to, to be able to hear him. You know, we're going to yeah. go somewhere private to be able to hear him. I think that's all that's being mentioned there at the end of verse 34. And when he came to the steps, verse 35, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, "Away with him!" I don't know if you picture this the way I do in my mind. Did you ever see like in cartoons, you know, there's like all these people, like big crowds of people and all the hands in the air and there's like somebody riding on top of the hands. like with the, you know, Crowd almost, surfing. Yeah, like crowd surfing, essentially. Uh, that's why I, the way I picture them carrying Paul out of here. <laughs> you know, uh, just again, away from the hands of all the, the angry mm. mobsters. Um, but this is quite a commotion. You know, James was not... 
he wasn't exaggerating when he stopped Paul, you know, when he first came into town and hey, we need to sit down and talk about this. Uh, this is what was, was going to take place. This is what the Lord, uh, this is the beginning of what the Lord had uh, said Paul was going to uh, endure when he came to Jerusalem. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder if there's a little bit of uh, symbolic, symbolicness? Symbolism? Symbolism? We'll go with that. Uh, in verse 30, uh, when they dragged Paul out of the temple and, and shut the doors. Uh, because like after this point, I don't think that we have any kind of reference to a Jew who listens and you know, believes. And, and comes. It's really they're shutting the door of opportunity on themselves mm-hmm. uh, when they're shutting Paul out. Um, so that just a little interesting thing there. But yeah, I, I think in this, man, we do see a lot of what happens when we make assumptions, what happens when we, we try to follow the crowd, um, especially when there's su- such an emotionally charged message. We get in trouble with this in social media all the time. Mm-hmm. And you hear people using strong language, uh, making statements, accusing people of things, and... It's really easy to not be able to get the facts straight, not be able to see, okay, well, what's the truth? Um, sometimes it, it's just so garbled and it's just a big mess and, and it's, it's impossible to do that. And so what we need to do, we, we don't need to be part of that. Yeah. You know, the more confusion we throw out there and the more uh, just venom that we spit you know, that just helps confuse matters worse. Because I wonder how many people in this crowd actually knew what was going on. Um, apparently not many of them, but they were all shouting out something. Um, you know, just what they had heard. What, and so it's just, this creates a scene that could very easily be avoided. Um, if we would have, if those first people would have just investigated, wait, is Trophimus actually in there? <laughs> like, where is he? Yeah. Uh, but no, let's just uh, make the assumption because yeah. that's what I want. Trophimus, who cares? We, we got Paul. That's what it's about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's again just, and we've 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 seen this type of scene more than once, and we've talked about the danger of the the following along with the crowd and the mob mentality and and yes social media is just a it is a haven for the 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 witch hunt mob mentality breaking out and that's that's the way that, that and and it it happens well we've seen lots of protesting and things of that nature happening as well but Probably the place in the space where it happens most often is in the digital world, and yeah. and we just need we need to exercise restraint and self control uh, is what's called for. Um, we've been making mention of, of this officer here as if he didn't have a name, and actually he is named a couple of chapters later in chapter twenty three. Uh, Claudius Lysias is the name of this mm. officer. Yeah. Um, so um, he, I wanted to bring attention to the fact that what he does there in verse 33 when he ends up ordering Paul to be to be bound you know so they essentially put Paul in handcuffs um that was necessary obviously in order to try to um calm the crowd to show hey we're 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 taking the proper action with this guy however that would have been kind of a damaging blow because it would have signaled to those to those Jews ah yep see 
Mm. That Paul guy, we knew it all along, getting yeah. arrested. And, and that happens as well. Again, it's another one of those kind of social media things that happens where you'd see some little snippet of, of information, some little picture. You know, imagine this a picture, somebody with a camera, cell phone there yeah. in Acts 21, taking a picture and then plastering it on social media. Look, Paul handcuffs. Obviously, he's a false teacher. He's obviously someone who's trying to lead Jews to hell. Uh, obviously, that's what all that must mean. Um, there's there's danger with just going with just snippets of, of information. But this that, that would have been, you know, uh, a visual cue to the people that, yeah, everything that we knew about that Paul fella, that's exactly right. Uh, regardless of what he's going to say, well, we've kind mm-hmm. of, we've already decided in our minds that, that he is what we thought he was. Um, verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So, <laughs> so uh, Claudius Lysias here um, had in mind um, that Paul must have been this other guy who had been kind of in the news recently as being a, uh, a, a rebel rouser. Mm. Um, This makes me wonder if this is um, the mention of, you're going to have to help me here, of the fella that was talked about as being some someone who led people astray Uh, uh, earlier. Yeah. Uh, Is this that same? Or maybe, um, or five, Judas of Gal, uh, the end of chapter five, when Gamaliel talks about Thutis and, and Judas, <laughs> Thutis and Judas. Um, we probably made fun of the rhyming of that earlier, but verse 36 and 37 of uh, chapter five. Okay. It makes me wonder if he maybe has in mind one of those guys, that that's who he's making a reference to here. Or this may be somebody entirely different, some other uh, Egyptian person who was uh, making the the news recently about leading people uh, to do all these terrible things. Um, and so he, he's surprised, I guess the point is he's surprised that Paul actually knows Greek and is able to actually talk to him, a fellow Greek-speaking person. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul replies, verse 39, well, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And so um, he finds, like I said, there's kind of a, I don't know if you'd want to say an ally here, but this guy, this officer, does seem to, if nothing else, he's wanting to kind of follow correct protocol. Uh, Maybe that's his main motivation. But he maybe there's partially, maybe just sees that there's a little bit of injustice being done here with Paul and is wanting to, you know, let him have his fair uh, opportunity to uh, go through the proper procedures and then, yes, to even have the opportunity to speak. And Paul's going to get that opportunity to speak. Uh, I hate the way this chapter ends because the final sentence of, of chapter 21, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, <laughs> insane. Yeah. Uh, 
This is a great reminder that uh, the chapter divisions are not put in there by the Lord. Uh, these are uninspired chapter divisions, and this is a terribly uninspired chapter division. Uh, I guess it's good for our purposes because it provides a nice cliffhanger for chapter 22. Uh, but if you're you know reading along, it's a it's a weird place to to end in the scene because chapter 22 then is Paul's uh, defense as he does speak to the people. Um, we're going to, we're obviously, we're going to end it at the end of chapter 21, but what, what do you want to say here uh, about this, maybe this last paragraph here at the end of chapter 21? Reminds me of the TV shows, you know, tune in next week yeah. for the exciting conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> you know? To be continued, dot, dot, dot. Exactly. I hated that. But, um, no, we, we see... So many things. I, I mean, in, in the whole chapter in general, um, you see leading up to getting to Jerusalem, wondering what's going to happen. And, and then, I don't know, you know, verses like 17 through 26 that, that sort of threw us off the trail a little bit because it was like, oh, but he's going to appease some of the people. So maybe that'll work. Maybe mm-hmm. that'll help. Well, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and, and, you know, what the Lord said was going to happen actually happened. Uh, and he was taken. You know, that the interaction that Paul had with the, the commander there, um, you know, imagine me and the commander and, and coming and, and witnessing all of this and not knowing what's going on, but it, it's like, well, this guy must be some kind of criminal because look at what everybody's doing. And he made the assumption that it must be the Egyptian guy. You know, maybe that was like the most notorious, uh, you know, most wanted person in, in, in the country or something. Mm-hmm. Um but he still uh, was able to be reasoned with and, and talked to. and um, you know, So this is a, a good indicator. It, it's good to know Greek. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting that Paul does not, he does not pull out his Roman citizenship card uh, here. Right. He's still holding that tight. You know, when he came to Philippi, there was a great opportunity to do that. Uh, you know, when him and Silas were getting pushed around and beaten up and all that stuff, and he didn't. Now, as they were leaving the city, he he brings it up um, in order to, you know, coerce a, an apology out of the, the, the leaders there. Uh, but he doesn't do that here. He kind of skirts around it a little bit when he says in his response in verse 39 that I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. A city of no, or a citizen of no obscure city. That's kind of him hinting at, like, I'm from a pretty important Roman place. Maybe you've heard of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But again, he's still not just coming out and saying it. He's gonna. He's only gonna use that when it's just absolutely, finally necessary to do so. It seems like just Paul. Paul is convinced, and I think he's he's probably confident enough in himself, and more importantly, he's confident that the Lord is going to give him the words that are needed. He's confident that if he could just have the opportunity, hey buddy, if you'll just give me the chance mm. to talk to these people and to speak to them in in their dialect, you know, I I can speak you know fluent Koine Greek to you. But on the you know snap of a finger, I can flip it over and I can speak perfect Hebrew to these people. If you'll just give me the chance to do that, I'm, I'm just confident it's going to be able to calm things down. You know, we've seen Paul in some some hairy situations. You know, mentioned the Philippi thing, mentioned the Ephesus thing. Probably none of those even compare to this. This is probably mm, the yeah. probably the most intense. Uh, of of the places that he's been in, where there's been you know this this mob, you know this is probably it, it makes me it makes me I, I can't help but keep thinking about you know Paul when he was the persecutor. 
this is probably the way that Paul was, you know, when he was leading uh, all of these folks, uh, when he was still Saul against mm-hmm. the early Christians, you know, with the in, in chapter seven and eight, um, you know, and it's kind of flashbacks. You know, now he's on the receiving end of that. He knows what that's like now, um, and. Uh, just give me the chance. If I could just have the chance to speak to them. You think about Stephen, you know, just give me the chance to speak to these people. And let me let me talk to them about their own Jewish history and and maybe it would be able to, to persuade them and, and cause them to think rationally. Uh, I think Paul has some of those same thoughts in his own mind that if I could just have the opportunity to do that, that people would would see the the truth for what it for what it really is. Um it's not going to entirely be that way, but uh, but he has confidence uh, in in you know his own life, and he has confidence in in the Lord to be able to help him to say what needs to be said. You know, maybe some of, of his past is is what has helped him be so bold and outspoken. You know, realizing you know I I was in that position. I need to to be adamant against that yeah. now, um, instead of saying. Man, I I just really messed up before, and I shouldn't have been doing that. And so, I just I, I just really need to be quiet. I don't need to um, step up and say anything because maybe they're going to call me out uh, for what I used to be. No, this pushed him to be even more outspoken, um, and he was very bold in the face of all of this. Uh, you know, how easy would it have been to be like, I don't want to get away from that crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, that's scary. Um, but in this, you, you see his boldness, but you also see his respect for authority because um, he, that, that phrase, I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Um, he was still you know, respectful to you know, the, the one who had the position of authority over him. Um, you know, did that person, you know, should the Roman uh, soldier, the commander, should he have arrested him and all? No, no, there, there was no grounds for that. There right. was no indication that he had done anything wrong. Um, did Paul, you know, what, what we might think of, did, did Paul have the right to stand up and say, listen, that's wrong, you shouldn't have done that? Yeah, yeah, you know, he, we mentioned his Roman citizenship. Mm-hmm. We did, he didn't uh, yet. And um, he, but, but still, he was, he was very respectful um, and and he didn't he didn't do that. Um, but he, he showed his his main focus and his primary concern. He wanted to speak to the people. Yeah. Um, it wasn't all about his rights. It was about well, give me the chance because what he's going to do. And I don't want to steal our thunder for next week, but I'm going to preach the gospel. And that's what it's about. Well, I'm rem- it reminds me of what Paul would write in in Romans chapter ten. In verse 1, when he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, for the Jews, mm-hmm. is that they may be saved. I bear witness, bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. And so, you know, he see these are his, these are his brethren, you know, yeah. uh, by nationality. And there's a care and concern for them, even though these people are, are you know, wanting dead, frothing at the mouth. It's just like Jesus, you know. I still love them. You know, I yeah. want to see them saved. Uh, there's there's a kernel of good there, this zeal that they have. Man, if we could just take that and channel that in the proper direction, 
what wonderful assets uh, these people and their passions and energies could be for the kingdom of God. And, and so that's why he, he wants the opportunity to, to speak to them. didn't want the opportunity to, to blast these people or tell them how dumb they are or um, you know, get even with them in any kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to talk to them. Uh, and just the fact that he, you know, he does this motion with his hand, verse 40, and then that slowly starts to quiet the people down. And then, as he begins to talk in in the Hebrew language, uh, would have, you know, potentially kind of caused them to 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 listen even more intently. Now, um, yeah. hey, maybe this guy does have something worth us listening to. And so that is going to be what we will look at in chapter twenty-two. Uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, we hate to stop here, but that's yeah, that's where the <laughs> that's where the text stops us at. Uh, final thoughts on chapter twenty-one before we close it. Well, uh, that was that was exciting and action-packed, uh, but I, I think that there's there's still a lot more left. You know, sometimes when we think about the book of Acts, the, those last few chapters um, they're not as familiar yeah. to a lot of us. I mean, there's there's some verses here and there. There's going to be a verse here in, in chapter twenty-two that yeah. we're going to read that is, uh, and and some other things that are mentioned, but. Um, for a lot of us, uh, I think it might not be uncharted territory, but there's a lot of things that uh, I think we need a reminder of that might have been a while since you've looked at. So I'm just excited to, to get back to this again next time. And uh, until then, just keep studying. Yeah. Well, we'll leave it on the cliffhanger. And he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, tune in next week.